Chapter Seven, Part Two of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From A Tramp Abroad. Foreign quotations again. When really learned men write books for other learned men to read, they are justified in using as many learned words as they please. Their audience will understand them. But a man that writes a book for the general public to read is not justified in disfiguring his pages with untranslated foreign expressions. It is an insolence toward the majority of the purchasers, for it is a very frank and impudent way of saying, get the translations made yourself, if you want them. This book is not written for the ignorant classes. There are men who know a foreign language so well, and have used it so long in their daily life, that they seem to discharge whole volleys of it into their English writings unconsciously, and so they omit to translate as much as half the time. That is a great cruelty to nine out of ten of the man's readers. What is the excuse for this? The writer would say he only uses the foreign language where the delicacy of his point cannot be conveyed in English. Very well, then he writes his best things for the tenth man, and he ought to warn the other nine not to buy his book. However, the excuse he offers is at least an excuse. But there is another set of men who know a word here and there of a foreign language, or a few beggarly little three-word phrases, filched from the back of the dictionary, and these they are continually peppering into their literature, with a pretense of knowing that language. What excuse can they offer? The foreign words and phrases which they use have their exact equivalents in a nobler language, English. Yet they think they adorn their page when they say Strasse for street, and Bahnhof for railway station, and so on, flaunting these fluttering rags of poverty in the reader's face, and imagining he will be ass enough to take them for the sign of untold riches held in reserve. THE Jungfrau. There was something subduing in the influence of that silent and solemn and awful presence. One seemed to meet the immutable, the indestructible, the eternal, face to face, and to feel the trivial and fleeting nature of his own existence the more sharply by the contrast. One had the sense of being under the brooding contemplation of a spirit, not an inert mass of rocks and ice, a spirit which had looked down through the slow drift of the ages upon a million vanished races of men, and judged them, and would judge a million more, and still be there, watching, unchanged and unchangeable, after all life should be gone, and the earth have become a vacant desolation. While I was feeling these things, I was groping, without knowing it, toward an understanding of what the spell is which people find in the Alps, and in no other mountains, that strange, deep, nameless influence, which once felt, cannot be forgotten, once felt, leaves always behind it, a restless longing to feel it again, a longing which is like homesickness, a grieving, haunting yearning, which will plead, implore, and persecute till it has its will. I met dozens of people, imaginative and unimaginative, cultivated and uncultivated, who had come from far countries and roamed through the Swiss Alps year after year. They could not explain why. They had come first, they said, out of idle curiosity, because everybody talked about it. They had come since, because they could not help it, 
and they should keep on coming, while they lived, for the same reason. They had tried to break their chains and stay away, but it was futile. Now they had no desire to break them. Others came nearer formulating what they felt. They said they could find perfect rest and peace nowhere else, when they were troubled. All frets and worries and chafings sank to sleep in the presence of the benignant serenity of the Alps. The great spirit of the mountain breathed his own peace upon their hurt minds and sore hearts, and healed them. They could not think base thoughts or do mean and sordid things here before the visible throne of God. Climbing the Jemmy Pass when we began that ascent, we could see a microscopic chalet perched away up against heaven on what seemed to be the highest mountain near us. It was on our right, across the narrow head of the valley. But when we got up abreast it on its own level, mountains were towering high above on every hand, and we saw that its altitude was just about that of the little Gasternthal, which we had visited the evening before. Still it seemed a long way up in the air, in that waste and lonely wilderness of rocks. It had an unfenced grass-plot in front of it, which seemed about as big as a billiard-table, and this grass-plot slanted so sharply downwards, and was so brief, and ended so exceedingly soon at the verge of the absolute precipice, that it was a shuddery thing to think of a person's venturing to trust his foot on an incline so situated at all. Suppose a man stepped on an orange peel in that yard. There would be nothing for him to seize. Nothing could keep him from rolling. Five revolutions would bring him to the edge, and over he would go. What a frightful distance he would fall, for there are very few birds that fly as high as his starting point. He would strike and bounce two or three times on his way down, but this would be no advantage to him. I would as soon take an airing on the slant of a rainbow as in such a front yard. I would rather, in fact, for the distance down would be about the same, and it is pleasanter to slide than to bounce. Descent of Jemmy Pass We began our descent now by the most remarkable road I have ever seen. It wound in corkscrew curves down the face of the colossal precipice, a narrow way, with always the solid rock wall at one elbow, and perpendicular nothingness at the other. We met an everlasting procession of guides, porters, mules, litters, and tourists, climbing up this steep and muddy path, and there was no room to spare when you had to pass a tolerably fat mule. I always took the inside, when I saw or heard the mule coming, and flattened myself against the wall. I preferred the inside, of course, but I should have had to take it anyhow, because the mule prefers the outside. The mule's preference, on a precipice, is a thing to be respected. Well, his choice is always the outside. His life is mostly devoted to carrying bulky panniers and packages, which rest against his body. Therefore, he is habituated to taking the outside edge of mountain paths, to keep his bundles from rubbing against rocks or banks on the other. When he goes into the passenger business, he absurdly clings to his old habit, and keeps one leg of his passenger always dangling over the great deeps of the lower world, while that passenger's heart is in the highlands, so to speak. More than once I saw a mule's hind foot cave out over the outer edge, and send earth and rubbish into the bottomless abyss 
and I noticed that upon these occasions the rider, whether male or female, looked tolerably unwell. There was one place where an eighteen-inch breadth of light masonry had been added to the verge of the path, and as there was a very sharp turn here, a panel of fencing had been set up there at some ancient time as a protection. This panel was old and grey and feeble, and the light masonry had been loosened by recent rains. A young American girl came along on a mule, and in making the turn the mule's hind foot caved all the loose masonry and one of the fence posts overboard. The mule gave a violent lurch inboard to save himself, and succeeded in the effort. But the girl turned as white as the snow of Mont Blanc for a moment. The path here was simply a groove cut in the face of the precipice. There was a four-foot breadth of solid rock under the traveller, and a four-foot breadth of solid rock just above his head, like the roof of a narrow porch. He could look out from this gallery and see a sheer summitless and bottomless wall of rock before him, across a gorge or crack of biscuits toss in width, but he could not see the bottom of his own precipice unless he lay down and projected his nose over the edge. I did not do this, because I did not wish to soil my clothes. Alp Climbing there is probably no pleasure equal to the pleasure of climbing a dangerous alp, but it is a pleasure which is confined strictly to people who can find pleasure in it. I have not jumped to this conclusion. I have travelled to it per gravel train, so to speak. I have thought the whole thing out, and am quite sure I am right. A born climber's appetite for climbing is hard to satisfy. When it comes upon him, he is like a starving man with a feast before him. He may have other business on hand, but it must wait. Mr. Girdlestone had had his usual summer holiday in the Alps, and had spent it in the usual way, hunting for unique chances to break his neck. His vacation was over, and his luggage packed for England. But all of a sudden a hunger had come upon him to climb the tremendous Weisshorn once more for he had heard of a new and utterly impossible route up it. His baggage was unpacked at once, and now he and a friend, laden with knapsacks, ice-axes, coils of rope, and canteens of milk, were just setting out. They would spend the night high up among the snows, somewhere, and get up at two in the morning, and finish the enterprise. I had a strong desire to go with them, but forced it down a feat which Mr. Girdlestone, with all his fortitude, could not do. THE OLD MASTERS We visited the picture galleries and the other regulation sights of Milan, not because I wanted to write about them again, but to see if I had learned anything in twelve years. Afterwards I visited the great galleries of Rome and Florence for the same purpose. I found I had learned one thing. When I wrote about the old masters before, I said the copies were better than the originals. That was a mistake of large dimensions. The old masters were still unpleasing to me, but they were truly divine, contrasted with the copies. The copy is to the original, as the pallid, smart, inane new waxwork group is to the vigorous, earnest, dignified group of living men and women whom it professes to duplicate. There is a mellow richness, a subdued colour, in the old pictures, which is to the eye what muffled and mellowed sound is to the ear. 
That is the merit which is most loudly praised in the old picture. And it is the one which the copy most conspicuously lacks, and which the copyist must not hope to compass. It was generally conceded by the artists with whom I talked, that that subdued splendor, that mellow richness, is imparted to the picture by age. Then why should we worship the old master for it, who didn't impart it, instead of worshipping old time, who did? Perhaps the picture was a clanging bell, until time muffled it and sweetened it. In conversation with an artist in Venice, I asked, What is it that people see in old masters? I have been in the Doge's palace, and I saw several acres of very bad drawing, very bad perspective, and very incorrect proportions. Paul Veronese's dogs do not resemble dogs. All the horses look like bladders on legs. One man had a right leg on the left side of his body. In the large picture where the emperor, Barbarossa, is prostrate before the pope, there are three men in the foreground who are over thirty feet high, if one may judge by the size of a kneeling little boy in the centre of the foreground. And according to the same scale, the pope is seven feet high and the doge is a shriveling dwarf of four feet. The artist said, Yes, the old masters often drew badly. They did not care much for truth and exactness in minor details. But after all, in spite of bad drawing, bad perspective, bad proportions, and a choice of subjects which no longer appeal to people as strongly as they did three hundred years ago, there is a something about their pictures which is divine a something which is above and beyond the art of any epoch since, a something which would be the despair of artists, but that they never hope or expect to attain it, and therefore do not worry about it. That is what he said, and he said what he believed, and not only believed, but felt. Reasoning, especially reasoning without technical knowledge, must be put aside in cases of this kind. It cannot assist the inquirer, it will lead him, in the most logical progression, to what, in the eyes of the artists, would be a most illogical conclusion. Thus, bad drawing, bad proportions, bad perspective, indifference to truthful detail, colour which gets its merit from time, and not from the artist, these things constitute the old master. Conclusion, the old master was a bad painter, the old master was not an old master at all, but an old apprentice. Your friend the artist will grant your premises, but deny your conclusion. He will maintain that notwithstanding this formidable list of confessed defects, there is still a something that is divine and unapproachable about the old master, and that there is no arguing the fact away by any system of reasoning whatever. I can believe that. There are women who have an indefinable charm in their faces which makes them beautiful to their intimates but a cold stranger, who tried to reason the matter out, and find this beauty, would fail. He would say of one of these women, This chin is too short, this nose is too long, this forehead is too high, this hair is too red, this complexion is too pallid, the perspective of the entire composition is incorrect. Conclusion, the woman is not beautiful. But her nearest friend might say, and say truly, Your premises are right, your logic is faultless, but your conclusion is wrong, nevertheless. She is an old master. She is beautiful, but only to such as know her. 
it is a beauty which cannot be formulated but it is there just the same i found more pleasure in contemplating the old masters this time than i did when i was in europe in former years but still it was a calm pleasure there was nothing overheated about it End of chapter seven